Welcome to Sculpture Vulture. I'm Lucy Branch, a sculptural conservator and author, bringing you a series of interviews with some amazing sculptors who inspire me and I hope will do the same for you. You can see the photographs accompanying the interview, the episode show notes and get a free novel from sculpturevulture.co.uk. Hello Sculpture Vultures and thank you for joining me. With all the terrifying world news that's going on at the moment, where if you're anything like me, I feel like I can do so little about, I find myself turning more and more to places where I seek solace. So my work, my writing, and I just wanted to say to all you sculptors out there, all you creatives who might have moments now and then, as we all do, when you think, gosh, is what I do worth it? Is it worth all the effort and the struggle? And why don't I just go and do something easier where I'm paid by the hour? Just let me tell you, it's times like these where I turn to your work to feed my soul when it is depleted by terrible news and your work is really important <laughs> and I'm sure I am cannot be the only person that that gets this and so I'm sure that my message represents lots of people in the world who you never ever hear from every time they look at one of your sculptures or your your creations and they they never think oh well I'll, I'll just email that person and tell them how much it meant to me but I'm gonna be their voice for them it really does and you may not be heading up NATO or organizing military procedures but what you do is valuable and there is immense comfort in that kind of distraction and that kind of nourishment that only <laughs> sculptors and creatives can provide. I was interested to see that this week there is a proposal for Chelmsford to have a memorial to Agnes Waterhouse, who was the first woman executed for witchcraft in 1566. I had no idea that Essex had such a, a huge thing against witches. In, not now, it makes it sound like I'm uh, holding you accountable to it now. In its past, Essex apparently executed more witches than any other county in the country. And so it's particularly fitting that they get that memorial. And not that anyone is asking me my opinion, but I think this is exactly the kind of memorial that we need, particularly because witchcraft and the execution of so many women was such a heinous part of female history. And I know it wasn't only females that were executed. There were plenty of men who were also tried and found guilty of witchcraft. But I think we can all agree that, you know, women got the lion's share of the noose. I'm, for one, are definitely going to be watching and waiting and hoping that this memorial gets made. I think a really public, symbolic gesture like this is exactly what we need. It can't bring anyone back, but... It can certainly make a statement and it can certainly right a wrong that should have been righted a long time ago. On a completely different note, 
in the last episode with Mark Richards, I realised that we briefly touched on a policy in Ireland. We mentioned the tax breaks that artists can get over there, but actually I wasn't alluding to that when I mentioned it to Mark. And I suddenly thought, actually, maybe not everybody knows about this and it might be of interest to you. I was actually talking about a recent policy in Ireland to give over 2,000 artists an independent living wage. It's not a fortune. It's, you know, kind of like a minimum wage level but it is a basic support package which would enable artists to create without having that massive pressure that you have when you know you have a certain level of bills a certain level of living to manage to pay for and what a brilliant commitment that is to creativity and One of the big problems I often come across when I'm working out in the public domain and people come up to me and they say, oh, art, what a load of rubbish. We should be paying for more care homes. And I I get it. There's just no there's no good argument for where money is best spent, because frankly, we just need more of it in every way, in every place in our culture. But Art is so important, creativity is so important. And that's not to say that we haven't had a zillion examples of professionals who have made it over that hurdle and managed to get themselves a proper living from their creativity. They have, but my goodness, how hard can it be? It really is. And the idea that maybe you wouldn't have to take jobs just for buttons which completely deplete you in order to be able to be a creative, I think is just a magnificent idea. And I'm absolutely sure that it's going to be producing a really fertile yield in the future. I know some people would call it idealism, but I hope with all my heart that Ireland can keep that pledge going to its creatives. And in my mind, it's a bold step and quite a brilliant one. Today I'm talking to Nicola Godin, who's a figurative sculptor, and although the majority of her work is for private owners, she's created some very well-known and loved monuments, including Icarus for London 2012 Olympic Village, Sir Peter Scott's sculpture for the London Wildfowl and Wetlands Centre in Barnes, and the Hammersmith Man for the Hammersmith Flyover, among others. I began our conversation today by asking, had sculpture first come into your life? Well, I was quite young, I think, because I always, from a very, very young age, drew all the time. When I was little, my uh, I used to come up to my mother with drawings and she said, well, who did this? And I would say, well, I did it. And she said, no, don't be so ridiculous, <laughs> you know. And I used to just do uh, drawing after drawing. I'd spend hours and hours drawing. And then apparently one day I, I kept, went up to her and sort of made some movements with her hands. And I said, I just want to do this as if I wanted to make build something I had this sort of fancy about creating little people and she went ah and she went and got me some clay <laughs> so she recognized it she did she did I was obviously fooling about with it quite young yes so I, I have to thank my mother for that <laughs> ah, so was that something do you think that she recognized from someone else in the family or is that something she was looking out for particularly not really. Um, my my father was very able. He could sort of pretty much do anything. He could draw. He could make anything. You know, he could sing. He all these things. It, it was just. I don't actually know where it came from at all. 
because it's strange because my own daughter is like me and could draw from when she was tiny but we don't know where it came from so it's it's just one just of those there. things <laughs> it, well anyhow yeah I, I spent I only I remember my childhood was just drawing I don't much remember much more but I just drew the whole time I um, was always hoping that one of my kids would be like that that they would just draw and entertain themselves for hours but unfortunately I've got the other variety who just want oh, to be yeah. entertained all the time instead <laughs> Oh dear, maybe it comes to you and your grandchildren. Uh, I'm really hoping for a nice, quiet one that just, you know, gets on with it themselves. And um, was there someone in school that took you a little bit further along the line or was it more at university? Unfortunately, nobody at school. I, I honestly, throughout my whole school life, I don't think I was taught anything artistically. I went to boarding school in, in, in Somerset and... I was the only person who touched clay or did anything really. And they honestly didn't know what to do with me. So they just left me to it. I had no tuition at all. And you know, even in my sixth form, really nothing. I mean, it's nothing like nowadays with the children. You know, the art departments in some schools are fantastic. Yeah. And I thought, oh, they're you lucky, lucky children. <laughs> <laughs> you know, my children, I think, you know. Gosh, you've had every opportunity to explore everything and, and all these really enthusiastic teachers. And honestly, nothing when I grew yeah. up at all. But I, I wonder, it's almost like they've gone to university before they've gone to university, uh, kids, because yeah. I keep saying you're going to be really disappointed because, you know, <laughs> there was something to sort of look forward to by yeah. moving on to higher education uh, oh, when yeah. in our day. But there isn't really now. Some of the schools yeah. are so set up. It's probably yeah. as good as a, a university department used to be. Absolutely. You know, that's what I thought, too. You know, years ago, I thought, well, yes, what's going to happen when you go to art college? I mean, you've done it all. Yeah, there's nowhere else to go. <laughs> I do remember when I was a child, my mother, when I was little, said, when you're older, you're going to go to art college. And I was thinking, oh, how exciting. Oh, I can't wait, you know. And then when I got to art college, it was one of the most miserable times in my life. I hated it. Oh, no. what? Where was it? Well, it was it was local. It was Farnham. Okay. First, I went to a foundation year, which was a complete waste of time for me because I knew exactly what I wanted to do. I wanted to do sculpture. wasn't interested in experimenting, you know, with any of these other, well, Mediums, whatever they did. Really, yeah. I mean, I, I just I just thought it was a complete waste of time. And then I went to the degree course, and I was thoroughly miserable there too. Oh, that's <laughs> terrible. It was awful. But it did. I was very, very figurative, as in uh, realistic figurative, sort of, I did that sort of work beforehand. And because I was so miserable at art college, it did change things. So actually, I, you know, looking back on it, it, it probably did me a lot of good because I started doing much more abstract work. Uh, and my unhappiness showed in my work and it became sort of raw and very simplified and more abstracted and actually was some of the best work I've ever done I think because I was Gosh. so miserable <laughs> but I mean it's incredible because that could have put you off I mean there yeah. there's sort of two ways to go with misery isn't there there's that sort of, sometimes it produces great work you hear songs you know obviously a lot about love people's hearts being broken and you you know some of the lyrics are really spectacular and you think they'd have never got there without experiencing that heartbreak but then there's also the part that just shuts the creativity down it, it literally puts a lid on it because you're just in such pain 
I do wonder, I mean, I just think you just made me think of Sibelius, you know, I think that he wrote some of his best music because he was so upset. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and people do, and I think that happened later on in my life when I was very unhappily married, and suddenly all this stuff started coming out, and I thought, oh, this is exciting. Yeah. <laughs> There's an upside to this. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's a big change uh, of style and work, so yeah perhaps angst is good for artists I yeah think. I, just thinking about like all the war poetry and all the the fantastic art that has come out of war but it feels wrong somehow that something like that comes out of something so terrible but i don't know how the the I don't know the psyche works really we're talking about poetry too i think when i was at you know at art college we had to do uh, we'd had to write something and anyhow i started writing poetry because i was so miserable and i i wrote i've never written poetry before and i've never written it since really and i just wrote this huge amount of poetry it was all sort of the you know the essence of what i felt i was just just trying to put it on paper and do you think that was was that loneliness or was it just not not really getting what you were desperate for in the learning a sort of a bit of both because I, I only, I think, really clicked with one person while I was at art college. And, and the, the chap who ran the department really shouldn't have been in charge of anything. He, he I don't know, caused a lot of trouble for me. Oh, no. <laughs> sort of squats, tried to snuff it out of you rather than encourage it. Yeah, and he was very unpleasant to me. So, he, he, yeah, I just tried to avoid him because he, I, I was... A bit too sensitive. I didn't fight back. I, you know, I was much more likely to sort of go off and cry in a corner. Very annoying, actually. So I think I, I, I wrote in the in some of the poetry while I was writing. Then I, I did write about him once, and when he read it, he didn't recognise it was him until another member of staff told him. <laughs> <laughs> Clearly not the most intuitive character then. <laughs> Anyhow, moving on. Yes, I mean, when did it? start to become a profession that was interesting because it wasn't until my degree show when some people were coming around you know members of public came around and saw the work and people started asking if they could buy the odd drawing I thought what buy something I've done and then I'll never forget a woman came around with her twin boys who were probably seven or eight at the time and she looked at one of these bronzes I'd cast of this very very abstract figure and she just stood there and she said, oh, my God, I love it. And her boy said, oh, mummy, why don't you buy it? And then she turned to me and said, can I buy this? And I thought, oh, my goodness. I, I had no idea that art could have that effect on people, you know, in, that something I could produce would would give somebody else, you know, something special. Such pleasure. Yeah. Yes. And suddenly I thought, oh, my goodness, maybe, maybe I can do this. Maybe I could continue and and it was the most wonderful wonderful that's why I've never forgotten it because I'd love to to meet the woman again it was it was a real turning point for me yeah Um, very very exciting and how funny as well that it was external it wasn't sort of occurring to you beforehand it it was that sort of uh, almost a surprise I love that yes and and I, I suppose before I thought, oh, why didn't I go into the sciences? Why wasn't I interested in something useful to society? You know, art. Where am I going to go with that? And then this, you know, turned around. Thought, oh my goodness! And then my attitude changed. I thought, gosh, if I can create something, either somebody thinks it's beautiful or heartfelt, or you know, they, they somehow they respond to it. I mean, that's that's really something special. So 
it was a real eye-opener for me. And so did it begin right away after that then? Did you begin to get traction straight away and throw your energy behind it? Or was there a few curves first? Well, I think the first thing I did, I was lucky enough to, I got a job at Madame Tussauds doing a, a figure there. And that in turn paid me enough to go and get somewhere to live in London and and then I was able to pay for a studio for I think three months and in that studio I, I, I was in Chiswick Barleymore workspace and it just so happened that Roddy Llewellyn was working there setting up his garden design business so I met him I don't know if that means you know because you're so young you, you hardly <laughs> There he was. And um, and he gave me my first commission because he was doing gardens. And he said, well, would you like to do a bronze for, for this garden? I thought, well, yes, of course I would. And of course, that then paid for my next three to six months or whatever it was. And and the person who whose garden it was, he had a business, he said, oh, would you like to do something for my company? And and then things started happening. It was just completely by luck, really, which was perhaps how these things happened. But Terribly exciting. <laughs> yeah. And also the fact is that each one of those, I mean, must give you confidence because that it validates the work, doesn't it? That someone else sees something else in it and it leads to that next thing. I think I'm in, in with that, really. I'd much rather do something I wanted to do and sell it or somebody says, oh, would you would you do that or, or, or a bigger version or whatever for me? It is It is difficult doing commission where somebody tells you, what you know what they want what they want you to do because you're not that you're not working from yourself are you and yeah well I think I don't some people really love the the restrictions of those commissions like it's almost like their creativity you know goes up if they've got the quite a, a narrow remit and then there's other people who seem to just hate any restrictions whatsoever I, I'm not great with uh I would say rules generally. I don't think I could ever work for anyone else. I'm probably unemployable because of the fact that I just can't work around other people's ways of doing things. But, you know, I, I'm always amazed at how brilliant some people are at that. Mm, I think I'm probably more like you, actually. <laughs> <laughs> A sort of rebel streak. I, I really love um, your Icarus series of statues. I, I think if, you know, in my sculpture park of my dreams, I would have to have one of those. Oh. Tell me where that came from. Going back to my childhood, because I lived in countries like Kenya and Cyprus and Singapore, they were just amazing places. And there was always lots of sunlight and lots of lots of sky, lots of space. And... I, for some reason, had always wanted to fly. I didn't really realise that. But there was that feeling of, yeah, I just want to learn how to fly. And it wasn't until my 50th birthday that um, my husband gave me some flying lessons. And that just completely turned my head. And that's when I started doing Icarus pieces because I wanted to to create that feeling of flying. And, and I think we were on holiday in Greece. And I said, how, how do I... How do I make this work? And then, of course, we talked about myth Greek mythology, and I thought, oh my God, I have him! I have him! <laughs> you know, it's Icarus. Yeah, I just I started working on a little Icarus figures, which then, of course, led to the um, the one for the Olympics, which was yeah, magnificent. Yeah, 
I mean, that must have been great to see that go in place. Oh, well, uh, yeah, I mean, that was quite extraordinary because I hadn't been doing the Icarus pieces for very long when um, the owner of the sculpture park, Eddie Powell, came to my studio because I'd, I'd been working with him for a while. And I said, oh, I'm so excited. Look what I'm doing, look what I'm doing. And um, he said, went away, said nothing. And then a week later, he said, you know, um, the Icarus that you're doing? He said, how would you like to make a big one? I said, oh, I'd love to do a big one. And he said, and how would you like it if it went into the Olympic Village for the Olympics? And this was only, I think this was the autumn before the Olympics. And of course, you imagine that all that stuff has been done years before. Yeah. I, said, I mean, you mean there's a chance to put something in? And he said, yeah. And so that's what I did. And it was so exciting. But gosh, <laughs> that space, it really needed it too. I, mean, I think it just, it gives a dimension that, it needed sculpture there for sure. Yes. And what was wonderful uh, during the Olympics, during the Paralympics, I was contacted by a, a, a young man, a, a South African, who, um, I mean, poor chap, he didn't have arms or legs, but he was competing. Yeah. And he said every morning he went up to the statue, sat in front of it, and it gave him courage to do his sport. And it was so touching. Yeah. And I thought, oh, that's the reason you do something isn't it it's yeah. uh, uh, amazing so uh, uh, that was and I'm sure that there's I'm sure that although you haven't heard them there must be multiple stories like that from the athletes that were there absolutely because it, it it is yeah it's an incredibly striking sculpture Oh, thank you. You were talking a bit about how the flying lessons kind of inspired that theme did do you use inspiration generally that way is it some experience that sort of shoots you forward with your work or would you say it's more internal I think there have been lots and lots of things and it's either something that's going on inside which you know in some cases is is how you feel emotionally like to say uh, your relationships but also you know things like you know I started working from bits of bone or stone that suggested figures and that's so exciting you know that's the other side you know this rather the more abstracted side and you see these figures in this stone and you sort of bring them out by producing the piece and so it can be something like that it's been occasionally it's been a dream I've had or a photograph or a tiny glimpse of something you know it, it can be almost anything okay. um, but that's what I find exciting I, I, I love changing my work I don't think you can necessarily tell that my work's my work. I don't. I don't know how other people feel, but you know, I've changed so much over the years, and I find that exciting. Just just trying out different things all the time. A kind of discovery mm. journey. It's creative discovery. But yeah. I mean, does that feed into the way that you work most days? Have you got like a routine for the studio, or is it more when inspiration strikes you? I tend to get your work in sort of manic bursts of work. And I will, I'll, I'll go in at, you know, when I was doing the Icarus, I was in at sort of seven in the morning to seven at night and what, not wanting to leave the studio, you know. Being um, dragged out. <laughs> loving it. Unfortunately, I have a family though. Ah, <laughs> oh, yes. There's nothing like uh, people snapping at your heels to make you get on with other things. Absolutely. It's a bit like when I did the uh, Peter Scott piece, um, when, when it when it was unveiled, 
two weeks later, I had my fourth child and I thought, right, I think I'm going to have a little break. <laughs> yes, I was absolutely exhausted. <laughs> oh, dear. A little bit of time with the children. <laughs> yeah. The only thing is, I'm not sure what is more exhausting. Half the time I go away to work so that I get a rest. <laughs> oh, yes, absolutely. I, I agree. And I, I love it when I'm completely immersed in some work, particularly a big piece. It's like this this time last year, I was doing a really big piece for Sculpture by the Lakes, you know, Simon Gudgeon's yes. place. And um, I, I just... I loved working. I was actually working at the foundry because the piece was much too big for my studio. My studio is very small. I you know, go there every day and whacking on great big pieces of slabs of clay. It's just the most brilliant feeling. I absolutely adore working like that, you know, and just all day long and there's no end to it. And I never get tired or bored or anything, you know, love working on big pieces. Something like that, you're having to go out every day, I sp- um, to obviously to the foundry. But do you have normally a routine to get you in the in the mode of working, or do you not need a routine? You can just slip straight in. Well, I I do sort of if I've had a bit of a gap, a break, I do go in and I tidy up my studio. And I listening to a previous interview, I think <laughs> I've heard someone else say the same thing. Uh, I go in there, and if I'm in the studio clearing it up and, and moving things around or just getting rid of all the dust and clay and everything. Just being in there is almost enough. Yeah, I think it was it was Louisa Forbes, wasn't it? And she yes, was saying, I yes, feel, yes. she's like, I feel so girly <laughs> sweeping up. Well, that's not girly, is it? Oh, I know. Yeah. Well, I think that's what how she kind of referred to it, like as if, you know, <laughs> like the 1950s or something, all we did was sweep. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you can see why there weren't many fe- famous female artists, can't you? I mean, honestly, when, you, when you're trying to, when you're bringing up all children, you're trying to, to, to keep everything running in the house, and it still goes on, and all my children are adult, and I still get torn away by them all the time. Absolutely, know? and I find that the older they get, I so, sort of, in my head, I thought it would all get easier, but at least when they were little, I used to be able to put them down to sleep at a certain time, and I knew I had a few hours. Now it just goes on endlessly, because they can, they're awake <laughs> later than I am, so they want me all the time. <laughs> yeah, you know, it, it, you come out the other end. Yeah. I, I remember some years ago, um, another a sculptor whose work I admire, um, Caroline Stacy, And um, she had six of her own children. In fact, I ended up with wow. two stepsons as well. So I had six to bring up. And um, she said, yes, but she says, now nah, they're all adults. They can, <laughs> I'm not doing anything at all. And, and she said, I'm not getting involved with my grandchildren or anything like that. And uh, she said, the good thing is you can just keep going. And I thought, oh, that's nice. And so I thought, <laughs> Yes, I don't actually have to stop this ever. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that's sort of how I feel now, which is great. I think, well, I've got years ahead. This is brilliant. <laughs> yeah, that's the great thing about creative industry as well, I think, is you don't think about that retirement age that other people do. You just, you know, it's it's not there. Yeah. Well, I've been teaching my husband how to cook too. It's brilliant. <laughs> oh, gosh, I need to do that. <laughs> Well, I'm, I'm working now. You see, he's, he's retired. And I think, well, OK, you can do something now. <laughs> uh, and has it been a good career to you? Yeah, well, I think I've had some wonderful times. Yes, I think if I'd been a man, it would be very different. But I wouldn't not have my children for anything. No. But I've, I've met all sorts of amazing people and 
you know, done some wonderful things. Yeah, I think it's been fantastic. And has there been hard times, though? Is there Has there been periods where you've thought, oh, I'm just not getting where I want to be? I don't know that I've ever got where I want to be. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, that's a really daft question. <laughs> you know, you just sort of, yeah. I, I, I think if I'd been able to be single-minded, it would have been very different. And I, I do envy lots of my male contemporaries because they have been able to be single-minded in a way that, because I'm a woman I haven't been able to yeah or, you know, not wanted to because I you know I valued the time with with the children yeah uh, and also I, I for me I feel a lot that I've only got so much uh energy whether that's directed into creative pursuits or so even if I've got the time I just have to have the energy left and if I've given it out which mm. you do very often with uh children and commitments like that you know you're just there's you're spent so actually even sometimes if I've got a couple of hours I'm like I just have nothing to give so <laughs> I mean you can't, be, you can't be brilliant at everything can you so no. you either be completely single-minded you know like Henry Moore was wasn't he lucky <sighs> you know you just go in the studio every single day and think of nothing else and I think a lot of men do that but I couldn't do that yeah know? I know I probably find that actually there wasn't that much to me anyway <laughs> so that's that's the other worrying part if you did have all that time I'm not sure I'd come up with that's the goods nice, have you have you had one or two days where you thought do you know what I should just do something else well as a career yeah as a, oh no I don't think so no I, I I only thought that when I was much younger no um once I started working I, I've had I've loved creating things so much yeah there's nothing quite like it when I'm on a roll I absolutely adore it doesn't mean I produce anything worth seeing but I just I just love it myself you know yeah and once you've once you've finished something you yeah get on to the next next thing and has there been a particular statue where you've thought yeah you know if I never make anything else I've done it I've never felt that (laughs) I I do sometimes there are a few pieces I think yeah I probably couldn't have done that better I'm I'm pleased with but they tend to be the more abstract pieces I think with figurative work you always feel that you could have done better so and and it's part of the the bronze casting process you know I was in the foundry most of this last week and I spend hours and hours and hours working on the waxes and they say when are you going to leave Nicola come on you know I say oh I won't be here long I say, yes you will you'll be here days and I'm trying to I'm trying to you know perfect the work I've already finished so I, I, I work for you know days on waxes and then when it comes through to the bronzing I look at them I think that's not what it was like and we start almost rebuilding in bronze and I think oh no so yeah I'm, I'm never I'm never really happy. satisfied <laughs> Well, I suppose there there's there is that element that is just incredibly hard to say. Right, full stop, done. Like end, you know that. Is it is now? I usually get thrown out, really. <laughs> so they send the muscle men in to clear the studio. I remember with with the I think it was the Peter Scott. Oh no, it was the Icarus. The, you know, big pieces. When I I thought how long it had taken me to produce. The, the, the Icarus and, and the, the wings, you know, they took me weeks and weeks just doing the feathers and the wings. And then 
it goes to the foundry and they chop it up into 37 pieces and I, I nearly cried oh I my thought, goodness believe it so they're going to weld all those little bits back together again of course it's never the same no and it can be really distressing <laughs> oh, I um, can imagine 37 I'd never realized it was quite as many pieces as that it, it was I, I did count the pieces I, I was absolutely horrified <laughs> Yeah, I had to step away and um, yeah, go cry quietly. <laughs> yeah, I know it, it was really, really upsetting. Yeah, <laughs> I know there needs to be some magical formula. The amount of problems that with sculpture that I work on, where it's the it's the joins that cause the issues, uh, especially over time, because they tend not to age quite at the same rate because the metallurgy is slightly different in those zones. They age at a different rate to the other parts. And so I have to do a lot of work trying to harmonise that. And, it, you know, it it's complex. Often with more traditional patterners, they do age better in some yeah. cases it tends mm. to be the problems arise with uh particularly with lighter shades and with mm. kind of more avant-garde patterners ones that are you know less classical yes. that you tend to get more problems with them but the thing is that you're not the only one that wants to weep when there's joins <laughs> <laughs> sure. oh, i've yeah. seen grown men weep too <laughs> frustration. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, Nicola, thank you so much for today and chatting to us, taking the time. And I was hoping you might tell everyone where they might be able to find a little bit more about you if they'd like to. Well, I have my website and that's easy. That's nicolagodden.com. And I'm on Facebook, Instagram and LinkedIn, possibly Pinterest as well. I, I'm not very good at, at doing all of these little social media things so I get other people to help me <laughs> hopeless I've really enjoyed actually listening to um, you know your your other in interviews I've been oh, listening to them and and some of the sculptors I didn't know about and I've loved seeing their work oh. and and it's really exciting to listen to other people and I, I always get I get such a buzz from seeing other people's work yeah. you know for like other foundries and 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 some, you know, the people on your that you've been interviewing, I was thinking, how do I not know about this person? You know, no. Well, the thing is that I sculpture inspires, right? It's not that you're copying other people, but it it yeah. fires you up, it and does. so yeah. you know, it, it's not a competitive thing like, oh, my work's better than their work or whatever. It's actually that you admire other people for their skills. Yes, yes, so, and and something that somebody else can have done, you know, like. Um, I don't know if you know the sculptor Michael Ayrton. Obviously, he's not alive now, but he's been quite an influence. His work, and you can even if you you get an idea from something else, you start doing your piece, and it turns into something completely different. Yeah. Um, because you're in there. You yeah. Know, um, that's really interesting. Yeah. If you try to copy something, you'd never be able to copy it. But you know, whatever you have to give goes into that work. Yeah, it's it's like your filter. It's come through. And yeah. and it and something new is produced, which is I mean, yeah. you know, it's evolutionary, it is. isn't it? <laughs> it is. And Super. thank you very much. I've really enjoyed this. Something Nicola talked about in the early part of her journey really struck me. And that was when she came across that art master at art school who should have been there encouraging and nurturing talent. But it sounds like took great pleasure in trying his utmost to snuff out whatever he didn't perceive to be 
up to it. Doesn't he sound like a real peach? I mean, and actually, I feel like I've met so many of that kind of person. But she quite generously says that in hindsight, it probably did her good and made her lean into abstraction, which she may not have done otherwise. And and actually, she created some really excellent work during that very unhappy period. Gatekeepers are such a funny entity. (laughs) Are they an entity? Well, they almost can be a fairy godmother type figure, someone who can, you know, wave their wand and make every dream you've ever had happen because of their power and importance. But they can also be the absolute opposite. They can be an executioner of your talent. But as I've grown older, I've realised that they're completely insignificant, or they, they can be, if, if you choose not to give them that level of power and you, can, you decide to control that power yourself. But particularly in the younger years, that looming presence can be one of the factors that changes your direction in life. And I've certainly come across some incredibly talented people, good friends of mine, who should definitely have become professional, successful creators because they have everything that anyone needs for it, but that have ended up doing something completely different because they were sliced down at a particularly vulnerable time. And frankly, I don't see why anyone other than a viewer, or in my case with books, a reader, should decide whether a work is worthy of merit. Not an arbitrary figure, a kind of critic. There are so many examples of when the public love something and the critics hate it. Now, Nicola's family has been a big feature in her life and hats off to anyone who can complete a massive commission two weeks before giving birth to their fourth child. My goodness, she must be made of some seriously tough stuff, is all I can say. But she does acknowledge a truism, I think, that with a family, you are likely to be less prolific. You do, I mean, it's impossible, I think, to give yourself over entirely to the creative life if you choose to have a family because kids are a big disruption. Let me tell you, a massive disruption. And they need your time and your input and you want to give it to them. And I mean, my personal experience, my kids will take absolutely as much time as I can give them. If I gave them every single minute of the day, my God, they'd want more as well. But I don't think that great creative work is tethered entirely to 100% commitment to your art. As Nicola recognised in her early experiences at college, strong emotions feed work. And if happiness, another very strong emotion, is a brood of kids to you, that will manifest great work too. A creative draws from what they have inside them. And so it comes down much less to how much time you actually have and much more to what has filled up that creative well inside you. Please support the show in one of three ways. By buying one of my novels. You're going to love them. They're all about sculpture. Or 
by rating the show on any of the apps that you listen to. And the final way that you can help me out is by telling someone about the show. Everyone I've come across who's listened to the show has been so kind about it and we want to spread the word. We want to get these interviews out to as many people as possible and get them thinking about their wonderful sculpture in public places. So please don't think it's unimportant to do it that way. It's so important and I really appreciate it. Coming up in the final episode of this season is David Brewer-Wheel, one of the UK's leading contemporary painters and sculptors. His works have been installed in major public spaces in London, including Hampstead Heath and Hanover Square, Grosvenor Gardens and Marble Arch, among many others. And his work is just jaw-dropping. You won't want to miss the next episode where you'll be inspired by David Brewer-Wheel. If you're looking for a new book, please consider one of my novels about the dark side of the art world, where sculpture is always at the heart of the story. You can get them on the show website, on the usual online retailers, or even better, keep your local library alive, ask for them in there. Thank you for joining me today. Sculpture Vulture has been brought to you by Antique Bronze.